All right. So we are in a series called Jesus in His Own Words, and I'm so excited to uh, get to talk about some of Jesus' words uh, that we're going to be diving into today. But before we get to that, I want to start with a story. Back in 2019, Bucks superstar Giannis Antetokounmpo had a uh, video that went viral. Now, what was interesting about this video was it wasn't of Giannis on a basketball court, but rather it was Giannis at a meet and greet signing autographs. Uh, Giannis uh, was interacting with an 11-year-old girl named Lily. Now, the backstory is uh, Lily had spent a year on some artwork for Giannis. She spent over a year constructing these pieces of art. And uh, she waited in line six hours that day to meet Giannis and give him her artwork. And so when the time came for Lily to finally meet Giannis and give him her artwork, this is what happened. So heartwarming, right? Giannis comes around the table, gives her a hug. She's crying. It's a beautiful moment. Reminds me of another moment. Uh, if you go back to December uh, this past year, Travis Kelsey's girlfriend, uh, a girl by the name of Taylor <laughs> Swift, was in New York for a, a movie premiere of a friend. It was late, late at night. The movie premiere ends. She's whisked out a side door. There's a limo waiting for her, but there's a few fans that had figured out it might be her limo. They waited hours and hours. She comes out the side door. They're yelling for her. She and her security guards kind of ignore them. She gets in the limo, and just as she's about to close the door of the limo, she looks back, and she sees this little girl. And so she gets out of the limo. She pushes past her security, and she goes over, hugs the girl, gets a picture with her. You can see her security guard, not amused in the background. And of course, that goes viral. That video clip, that picture goes viral. There's, there's something about celebrities interacting with kids we just love, right? Like, we love a good story of, of a celebrity taking time for a little child, and vice versa. You want to get, get people irate, have a celebrity ignore a child, there's just something in us as a culture that says even though children are young and their brains aren't even fully developed and they may not even remember the interaction when they're older, that it matters, that children matter. Just go to Disneyland and you'll see how much we as a culture think children matter. And I think it's easy to forget that that was not always the case. For thousands of years, our world had a very different view of children. In fact, For thousands of years around the world, children were seen as commodities or resources to be bartered, sold, or traded. 2,000 years ago, in Jesus' day, a child's world looked vastly different from their world today. Let me give you a few examples from Jewish and Roman culture. Uh, Many historians believe 
that parents in Jesus' day would not emotionally attach to their children until puberty. That was because the death rate was at about 50%. 50% of children didn't live past their fifth birthday. Only 40% of children would make it through their teen years. So many parents would not emotionally attach their children until puberty. So many babies died that in Roman society, a child wouldn't receive their name until the eighth day if they were a girl, ninth day of their life if they were a boy, and it was on that day that they became a person. So many babies died before the eighth or ninth day, and it wasn't just nature. Sometimes it was choice. Parents had a choice in Roman society before the eighth or ninth day, before they gave a child their name. If they decided they didn't want the baby for any reason, they could take it outside the city walls and just leave it. Sometimes the wild animals found it. Other times the child would be picked up, but not by a caring individual, by groups that would rear the child and then turn it into a slave for the rest of its life. This was common, more common with girls and babies with birth defects. One piece of historical evidence we have from that time is a letter written by a Roman soldier in Egypt writing to his pregnant wife. And he tells her in the letter, if you give birth to a boy, you can keep it. If you give birth to a girl, take it outside the city walls and leave it. In many ways, children were seen as as resources, commodities. There's a writing of that time comparing educating children to that of training a wild animal. Beating children as a form of discipline was common in Gentile and Jewish society. So it is with this understanding of society in Jesus' day and their views of children, it is with this understanding that we come to our text today, and it is with this understanding that Jesus' words and the story that we're going to read today is that much more fascinating and impactful. We're going to read a a story today of Jesus interacting with some children and interacting with his disciples. And if you've grown up in church, you've probably heard this story before, but I want to caution you to look at this story, to listen to this story with the belief that God is going to speak something new and fresh to you today, even if you've heard this story many, many times. Now, this story is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Three of the four Gospels all have this story, but we're going to read Mark's account. So in Mark 10, starting in verse 13, here's what Mark writes. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. In my preparation for this sermon, I looked at old famous paintings of this scene. Obviously, we don't know what this scene actually looked like, but it's, uh, it's interesting to see what famous painters over the past centuries have thought this scene might look like. And so I found two, uh, two of my favorites I want to show you. So the first one is by Benjamin West. And I, I like this one because I think Benjamin West shows us the chaos of this scene, right? There's all these little children and Jesus is holding this baby. And then in the far upper right corner, you have the disciples' quizzical faces. It's almost as if they're thinking, all right, this guy calmed a storm. Let's see what he can do with a three-month-old. <laughs> and then my other favorite painting... It's by a guy named Carl Block. And the reason I like this, I don't know how well you can see it, 
But the, the sole reason I like this painting is Jesus is giving his disciples the look. <laughs> he is indignant that they would keep little children from him. Now, regardless of, of how this, what this scene actually looks like, I hope you can picture this scene in your mind. Jesus is teaching. People are bringing children to Jesus. Now, it was common practice in Jesus' day for Jewish moms and dads to bring their children to the Jewish synagogue to be formally blessed by the rabbi. That was common practice. But on this day, Jesus' disciples rebuked the people. It's interesting. I, I think the Gospels have all sorts of little humorous moments. I think this is one of them. When you read the Gospels, the disciples have no problem letting lepers or Roman soldiers or powerful religious leaders right by to see Jesus. But suddenly when it's little children, they become big, strong bodyguards. We're going to keep little children from Jesus. We're going to do our jobs. We don't know why the disciples were keeping the little children from Jesus. Maybe it was as simple as they thought it was a waste of time. Below Jesus' elevated station, Jesus had better things to do. Remember, the disciples thought that Jesus was going to overthrow the Roman Empire. And if Jesus is going to overthrow the Roman Empire, then he's got better things to worry about than little children. But there is one more fascinating theory that some Bible scholars give us that I, that I think is worth noting. Now, depending on your translation, some translations translate this a little differently, but the most accurate translation to the text uh, is, is the wording that Mark uses in, in the translation that I've shown you. The most accurate translation of this text in all three Gospels gives us people were bringing children. Not parents were bringing their children, not people were bringing their children, but people were bringing children. So this has caused some Bible scholars to propose that it wasn't parents bringing their children to Jesus, which would have been a common Jewish practice, but rather that people, seeing how compassionate Jesus was to the untouchables of their society, were bringing orphans, street urchins, smelly, dirty, little children that had no parents. They were bringing those children to Jesus. And the disciples knew that those children were cursed by God, they were unwanted, and so the disciples felt that Jesus didn't need to bless them. Now, regardless of which theory is true, whether it was parents bringing their children or whether it was people bringing orphans to Jesus, Jesus' response shows us the heart of God either way. Jesus becomes indignant. Very few times in the Gospels that Jesus grows agitated to his disciples, but this is one of them, for little children. And he says that beautiful line, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And then Mark writes that Jesus doesn't just put his hands on the children and formally bless them as a Jewish rabbi would, but Jesus takes the children in his arms, which is something that a Jewish rabbi would never have done. In Jesus' society, that would have been very undignified for a man, or especially a Jewish rabbi, to take somebody else's child in their arms. In fact, if you read Matthew's account, remember, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. And Matthew knows that a Jewish audience would have a difficult time with a rabbi taking children in his arms. It was so undignified. So Matthew writes, if you read Matthew's account, that Jesus just kind of formally blesses the children. But Mark gives us the real story. Mark says, Jesus, Jesus takes them in his arms. He doesn't care about being dignified. 
he welcomes these little children. It's a beautiful story. But one that I think in our culture, in our setting, we, 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 we sometimes lose the significance and the power of. Because it's so easy for us to go, oh yeah, of course Jesus welcomed the little children. Yeah, of course Jesus said to those mean, cold-hearted disciples, let the little children come to me. And perhaps because it's so easy to embrace this story in our culture, it's easy to lose the power and the significance of it. And so in the time we have left, I'd like to share three thoughts that I have about this story. And my hope is that God would challenge all of us in at least one of these three areas. So number one, we can all hinder the next generation from coming to Jesus. As I said, it's easy to look down on the disciples. How could those cold-hearted disciples keep the beautiful little children from coming to Jesus? But before we shake our heads with judgment at the disciples, I think it's important after we read this story to ask a very difficult question, and that is, is there, is there a chance that we are hindering the next generation from experiencing the kingdom of God and coming into a life-giving relationship with Jesus? As I've been pondering this idea, I've thought of a few ways that I think we might. These are not all the ways that we might, but these are a few of them. So first, I think we might hinder the next generation from coming to Jesus when we consider the next generation the future of the church and not today's church. Sometimes I hear people say, well, you know, the, the children, they're, they're, they're the future of the church. And I understand why we say that, because in a sense they are the future of the church, but, but they're also today's church. The disciples saw the little children coming to Jesus and they saw them as tomorrow's problem. Jesus saw them as today's opportunity. And I would ask all of us in the room, when we look at, when we look at students, children, do we see them as a, as a problem to be dealt with tomorrow or do we see them as today's opportunity? We hinder the next generation when we don't consider them today's church, when we don't invest in them, when we don't empower them to use their gifts and talents, when we don't see them as a vital part of, of today's church. I'm so thankful that at Northbrook we embrace this idea that, that our students, that our children matter, that they're today's church so thankful for our leadership here that believes that, but, but it's going to take more than the leadership here for us to be a church for the next generation. It's going to require all of us to have an attitude that sees our young people not as tomorrow's church, but as today's church. Secondly, we might hinder the next generation when we look at them with judgment instead of curiosity. I think it's easy for every generation to look at the generations coming after with a little bit of skepticism. After all, the generations coming after us don't think like us, they don't act like us. And I get it. I've been in youth ministry for 17 years. When I started youth ministry in my early 20s, like I related to the teenagers that I worked with, right? I was just a little bit older than them. I understood their language. I understood their lingo. For the most part, I understood their world. Now, 17 years later, I have to ask my 14-year-old to translate things that students say to me. I'm like, I'm not sure if that kid was dissing me or giving me a compliment. Like, what does this mean? And it's easy to judge. It's easy to criticize something you don't understand. 
The older I get, the easier it is to judge. But what I feel like the Lord constantly convicts me and reminds me of is that just as a missionary goes into a culture and has to understand the culture before they can minister to the people, you and I as older generations must first do the hard work of understanding the generations coming after us in order to minister to them. And that requires leading with curiosity instead of judgment. That requires reminding ourselves that every person has a story, that every action has a story, that every attitude has a story, and understanding this story can help change the heart. Leading with curiosity is necessary if we're going to impact upcoming generations. And lastly, we hinder the next generation when we tell them, put first the kingdom of God, but we don't model it. It's easy to say, do as I say, but that that doesn't change lives. Over my years following Christ, I've had a lot of wonderful people teach me, instruct me, preach wonderful messages, and I believe in teaching. I believe in preaching. I've, I've given my life to teaching and preaching. But I will say that the most impactful moments in my life have not come from messages. They've not come from teaching. They've not come from preaching. They've come from people around me living out the gospel. He was a missionary in Baja, Mexico, who I saw firsthand being willing to put his life on the line to preach to the people around him. It was a mentor who told me about a time in his life when he felt compelled by God to give a large sum of money to a missions organization, even though money was pretty tight in his own life. It was a friend that I saw experience great amount of sorrow and grief, but still maintain a heart of gratitude. It was a family member walking with me through my own difficult journey. It was people living out the gospel. And if we want the next generation to become people who live out the gospel, it's not going to come from us telling them, you should live out the gospel. It's going to come from us modeling it. It's going to come from them looking at us and saying, I don't know why you have so much joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness, but I want it. That is how you make compelling followers of Christ. And so perhaps for some of us, there's an opportunity to ask a difficult question. Are we in any way hindering the next generation from passionately pursuing Jesus? Are there things in our life habits, attitudes, assumptions that may be holding back future generations from embracing the kingdom of God? And if so, what is God asking us to do about it? Number two, we can all help the next generation experience Jesus. If we can all hinder the next generation, the good news is we can all help the next generation experience Jesus. And there's so much potential you know, I think about the, the story of the disciples, and I wonder how differently that story could have gone. What if instead of keeping the little children from Jesus, what if the disciples had gone out and brought all of the little children and the teenagers that they could find to Jesus? Imagine the impact the disciples could have had if instead of hindering people from coming to Jesus, they went out and brought more. Because there's so much potential in the life of a young person. Statistically, we know that 90% of Christians accept Christ before the age of 20. We have this window where it is so much easier for a, for a person to accept Christ. 
And there's so much potential if they'll accept Christ at a young age. It's why famous evangelist D.L. Moody once came back from a church meeting and someone asked him how it went and he said, two and a half people converted to Christ. And the person was a little befuddled for a little bit and they said, two adults, one child? And D.L. Moody said, no, two children, one adult. Friends, we have an opportunity in a culture that is screaming for the attention of our young people to point their attention back to Christ. To get involved in the life of a young person, either in our homes, in our churches, in our community. And the good news is you don't have to be perfect to influence the life of a young person. You just have to be present. So maybe for some of us, there's an opportunity to be intentional, to invest in the life of a a young person. And lastly, number three, we can all learn from little children. Jesus says, you must become like little children to enter the kingdom of God. And it's interesting that all three gospel writers, they give us this story of Jesus and the little children, and then immediately following this story, all three gospel writers give us a story of a rich young man coming to Jesus. And if you've grown up in church, you might be familiar with this story too. A rich young man comes to Jesus. I'm sure his experience was very different from the little children. Whereas the little children were denied access to Jesus, the rich young ruler had wealth and influence, so I'm sure the red carpet was rolled out for him. He just walks up to Jesus. And he says, hey, what do I got to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. And the rich young ruler says, yep, excellent. I've been keeping all the commandments. I'm a choir boy with a halo. And Jesus says, well, one thing you lack... Go sell everything you have and then come follow me. And you know, go sell everything you have seems harsh, but think about the opportunity that Jesus is giving this young man. You want to talk about an opportunity of a lifetime? Opportunity of lifetimes? Jesus has just offered this young man a place to be his disciple, to be in his inner circle. This young man has just received an offer to follow Jesus, to watch Jesus walk on water and heal the blind and heal the lame and heal lepers, feed thousands of people with a little bit of food, raise the dead. This young man has just been given an opportunity of a lifetime. Jesus says, you can come follow me. But the young man goes away sad. He turns Jesus' offer down. Do you remember why? Because he had great wealth. But see, this story isn't about wealth. It's about the things we grow attached to as we age. See, there's a beautiful, a beautiful connection between the two stories. See, the little children, they come to Jesus and they have no attachments. They're just little children. They're happy to be in the rabbi's presence. But as we age, we become like the rich young ruler and we grow attached to certain things. And we want our Jesus, but we also want our stuff. But to truly embrace the kingdom of God requires us to lay down our attachments, to lay down the things that our culture tells us we need or we want as we age, to go back to that four or five-year-old child who's just happy to be alive and not so accustomed to status or wealth or money. When Jesus says we must become like little children, what he's reminding us 
the principle he's reminding us of is to truly embrace the kingdom of God requires us to daily lay down the attachments metaphorically at Jesus' feet and live in the fullness of serving God. During communion, I mentioned uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, the the interesting one of the interesting facts about the Garden of Gethsemane that I found out while I was there is uh, these these olive trees. While they are not two thousand years old, right? They, these aren't the same trees that were there when Jesus was there. Um, they are some of them are a thousand years old. So uh, planted a thousand years ago. And you think about a tree, right? Like whoever planted these trees in the Garden of Gethsemane, like they, they had no idea how many people thousands of years later were going to be able to fly from all over the world to the garden to have a moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Thousands of years, a thousand years ago, they had no idea the impact that their continuing the Garden of Gethsemane by planting these trees would have on thousands and thousands of Christians, and I think about that, and then I think about you and I, and when we invest in the life of a child, when we invest in someone else's life, we have no idea the impact that it's going to have. We have no idea the generational impact that it's going to have. But isn't it beautiful that in the kingdom of God, that you and I, imperfect as we are, have a beautiful opportunity to invest in the life of generations that will outlive us, that our impact through the power of the Holy Spirit as we humbly show up and are present in the lives of the generations coming after us, can be felt long after we are no longer living. That's a beautiful thing. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your love and your goodness. Father, I pray that you would help all of us, imperfect as we are, As parents, as grandparents, we make mistakes. Thankful for your grace. But I thank you that you choose to use us to impact the lives of those around us. May you bless our families. And may you give us wisdom as we invest in the lives of the next generation and as we embrace your kingdom like little children. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.